Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan, coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. NachumSiegel.com, JM and the AM dot org. And welcome to another Thursday night extravaganza. We've had a very interesting show, as always. Nothing stays still in the political world. So we have a couple different things today. And I want to present uh, a format that we're going to try and uh, use, going to have multiple interviews as we've done. We're also going to introduce our new intern officially on the air. But first, the headlines. And as far as headlines are concerned, I know everybody can go ahead. They can read the Times, Journal, Politico, whatever websites that you that you read and out there. And the, okay, you can get some headlines. But really what we're going to talk about is what I think are the important headlines of the week and those that really kind of affect the political world and change things that are going on. Yeah, of course, there's immigration and there was a presentation of immigration proposals. And I, as uh, our guest, Heavy Troy, last week, said immigration might be the doable big issue of this second term, or at least the beginning of the second term. So that's there on the table. That's great that the Congress and Washington might be ready to deal with a big issue. Let's see. Let's see if we can get some kind of agreement. But let's also talk about some other things that are affecting our world. One surprise announcement, I think, that should not go unnoticed is that Governor Deval Patrick of Massachusetts decided to pick, to not pick, I think that's the big headline, he decided to not pick the loquacious and combative and quite uh, interesting personality of Barney Frank, the expected pick. Everybody expected that he was going to replace John Kerry was just confirmed as Secretary of State, and that everybody expected Governor Patrick of Massachusetts to go ahead and pick Barney Frank, the outgoing House Financial Services Committee Chairman, as the interim senator until a June special election. But he did not. He picked a former chief of staff of his, Mo Cowan. And you might say, Mo who? Right? We don't know who he is. But I guess Governor Patrick wanted to go with his inner circle. He wanted to go with the people who are closest to him. And that was something that uh, perhaps in all his verbal acrobatics and verbal sparring over the years, it's possible that Barney Frank rubbed some people the wrong way. I won't say anybody in particular, although there are some classic CNN and YouTube clips that you can find Barney Frank on. Uh, CNBC actually more particular, uh, some fantastic clips out there, only rivaling somewhat Anthony Weiner. Uh, although I think Barney Frank was a little more interesting. But I think that one thing that this tells us is also instructive of the Obama White House is that there is a lot of insider comfort in both of these administrations. Governor Patrick obviously picked somebody who's really, really close to him. And somebody he felt very, very comfortable with. Obama has picked people for his administration that he feels very close to. And people that he has a lot, a lot of comfort in. He hasn't really reached outside for this second term for some of these picks. It's kind of promoted from within. 
So one thing to think about. And one other headline that uh, I thought that was particularly interesting is a editorial in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that talks about how many governors, Republican governors in particular, in the states are kind of racing to lower and eliminate income taxes in their states. And they're going in the kind of a race towards the bottom because they they know that lowering taxes and creating a lower tax environment is what is going to eventually lead to economic growth and prosperity and lead people into those states. So perhaps the governments here in New York and in New Jersey and Connecticut can kind of take a cue because all that we hear around here, at least in New York, is pay the fair share. Everybody's got to go ahead and pay the fair share. The 1%, this, raise taxes. Everybody can afford it. But if we see that the studies that have all been done as far as states are concerned is the most stable economies as far as tax revenues and the most stable economies as far as attracting private sector business are those with the lower tax regimes. And I think politicians in New York should take notice. Politicians in New Jersey should take notice. Politicians in Connecticut should take notice. And a lot of the Northeast is going to become less competitive over time if we continue along this trajectory. And the last uh, headline that I want to look behind is a the announcement of John Katsimatidis, the billionaire supermarket mogul for mayor of New York, a one-time Democrat like uh, many of those running, uh, or certainly a continued Democratic supporter, calls himself a Bill Clinton Republican, or maybe a Bill Clinton Democrat, I'm not sure exactly, but he gets up on the city hall steps and decides that he is going to talk about how cheap the suit, he, how cheap his suit is. He says, oh, I'm not Mike Bloomberg. I'm not wearing a $5,000 suit. In fact, I'm wearing a $99 jacket, and it really doesn't fit that well. And not to knock John Casamitidis. I've met him. He is a He's a nice man. He's a generous guy. I, I had a lot of... Uh, had a lot of interactions with him uh, in the past, but I, I will tell you, I'm not sure that that's what people are looking for. The other thing, of course, is that let's not knock Mike Bloomberg. He is, himself is a self-made man. So to kind of go ahead and say, well, I'm the self-made billionaire. Mike Bloomberg isn't. I think you should remember that Mike Bloomberg also came from very humble beginnings. So as I said, I know many of you are waiting. Uh, we have an intern on the show, Judith Frankiel from Stern College, and I uh, want to welcome her to the show. And, uh, take a couple minutes that she can tell us about herself and uh, what she's doing here and why she's given uh, given some time to uh, further the cause of the Nachum Siegel Network and further the cause of uh, understanding of Jewish politics. Judith, welcome. Hello, how are you? Good Good evening, Judith. So uh, tell us uh, what you've been doing over the past couple of years and what draws you, to, uh, draws you to politics. You are not from New York. I'm not from New York. I'm from the West Coast. The better coast. The, be- the better coast. The better coast. Also known as the left coast occasionally. Can you be more, sp- can you be more specific? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm originally from Los Angeles, and, and growing up, my family always spoke about politics around the Shabbos table, and it was really a, an integral part of my family structure. And as I continued on to my college career, I entered Stern, and I decided to become a political science major. But you know, before going to Stern, I spent a year in Israel. And when I came back, I had all of this passion for Israel, but nowhere really to express it. And that's when I joined UPAC, the Yeshiva University Political Awareness Club. And what UPAC does is we try to make Stern College 
an active hotbed for political activism for the pro-Israel community. So we're not just serving falafel. You know, we're getting people involved with campaigns. and Not just serving falafel. Not just serving falafel. <laughs> We're doing a bit more. We're getting people involved with campaigns. Um, we're bringing 280 students this year to Washington, D.C. to lobby their member of Congress. Wow, when is that? That's April 11th. April 11th, okay. April 11th. So Mark your calendars. Mark your calendars for students only. Ah, okay. <laughs> but we really want to get the, the younger Jewish community actively involved with the U.S.'s relationship because ultimately... If there's no voice, you know, our elected representatives won't care about it, won't be an issue. So we need to make sure that we're strong and we need to make sure that we're vocal about our passion and our care for the U.S.'s relationship. So how many members are there of the club? Well, there's 14 of us on the board, but we have a pretty active base, probably around, you know, 100, 200 people that we can contact immediately if we have an event or if we're having, you know, some sort of a campaign we volunteer for all sorts of different initiatives that are going on. You know, this week we're bringing people to go meet Joe Kennedy. Um, we're volunteering to help run an event for him. And, you know, we get to meet him afterwards. So those are the types of things that we do to get people involved and inspired and active. So are we bipartisan or? Are we, we are very bipartisan. Very bipartisan. We are very bipartisan. Okay. Just like we're just <laughs> like then, the show. Just like the show. Exactly. <laughs> so tell, tell me a little bit what it means to have uh, pro-Israel activism on a campus like YU. It would seem YU Stern, Yeshiva College, Stern College would seem to be uh, pretty pro-Israel. We generally. are, we are definitely pro-Israel. I mean, you know, I like to say there's 99.99% is pro-Israel. I don't want to exclude anyone if they're feeling differently. But over 80% of the students spend a year in Israel or more. Um, and unlike other colleges, campuses, we don't have to fight anti-Semitism or we don't have to fight anti-Zionism. We can use all of this passion and energy uh, to be constructive and to do things about it and, and to take a stance in, in our local and nationwide politics. But... You know, unfortunately, we become a little lazy, I think, and we become a little, we become a little um, station, stationary, and we don't, we don't do as much as we should be doing. And I think that's because we're just so used to, we're so used to the older generations working for us. We're so used to Israel being around. We don't know what it would be like if it wasn't around. So it's our job at UPAC to take people who are already interested in Israel, but actually take that energy and make it useful, and to speak to their members of Congress during Operation. Uh, during Operation Pillar of Defense, we had, you know, we had hundreds of students calling their member of Congress, thanking them for signing the bills in support of Israel or asking them to sign the bill of support in Israel. And because, you know, we have people majority from the East Coast, but we also have, you know, students from across the nation, we can really call many different congressmen and we can call many different senators and we can contact people who are more than, you know, more than just this East Coast community. We can make a vocal stance across the nation. That's fantastic. So that's... Uh it's a great network to have. And how, how, how about the interaction with other campuses out there? That's the... I think there's definitely in New York City, because we're all so close to one another, it's a lot easier than um, other campuses. I know we've made, you know, the presidents of these clubs have gotten together on a Sunday, Brooklyn College, Queen Collins, Queen College, NYU, Columbia. We've all gotten together to kind of collaborate. Unfortunately, because of the way our, all of our different campuses work, it's a little more challenging to have events run together. But I know that when we have a lobby mission, you know, if we have extra spaces or if they have extra spaces or constantly working together, I know uh, when NYU or Columbia have their lobby mission, if they have two or three extra spaces even, they call the other campus, do you want it? You know, do you have anyone who can come? We want to fill these seats. We want to do it together. We're, you know, we're all from the same city. Um, and there's definitely collaboration between the campuses. What kind of educational programs are you running for? for how, do, how do you get people into politics? I know people are into elections or into 
policy, right? It's not just about a classroom thing. Oh, definitely. And I think on the girls' campus in specific, we're challenged because for some reason there's this conception that, you know, I'm a woman, so politics really isn't my forte or I don't really need to know about it. You know, that's for someone else. I'm not into politics. I get that all the time. And what I try to explain to these students is that whether you like it or not, politics is happening and it's affecting you. And if you care about Israel and you want Israel to stay on the map and you want to strengthen the U.S. relationship, so you need to do something about it. And and you... You don't have to necessarily know every single senator. You don't need to know the, all, you know, the presidents of the United States. But you need to take a role in the things that you care about. So if you care about Israel, it's up to you to call your member of Congress and to remind them to care about Israel. Because, you know, they're very busy. Members of Congress, senators, they're very busy. They have 100 things to do on their list. We need to make sure that Israel is on the top of their list. And what about, do you guys look at other races, uh, state and local at all? Because I think we always say that... Uh, today's uh, county legislator is uh, tomorrow's congressman. I think that I think that's definitely true. Um, you know, on the Uptown ca- Campus, Congressman Ringel, he's he's a fantastic congressman. He's also getting a little bit older. Um, and, you know, he might possibly retire in maybe the next few years or so. A lot of speculation over the last couple of years. On yeah, that. but, you know, who knows? He might have another 20 years in him. You um, never know. <laughs> but we definitely try to look around. Those, and, those Korean War veterans are, are quite, have a lot of stamina. <laughs> We definitely try to look around and see if there's, you know, who the potentials are for the next for the next congressman. Uh, so maybe we can meet with them. But but in general, we really have a laser a laser beam focus on the people who are actually in Congress now, the decision decision makers of today. You know, we really need to if we need to focus our energy on on anyone, it's going to be the people of today who can actually make a difference. Now, we're not necessarily focused on strategy for the next you know twenty years or so. We focus on the people who are signing and sending billions of dollars to Israel this week or this year. So, Judith, fantastic. I think uh, we're going to have you for many, many more weeks. So we're going to continue that conversation. We actually have our first telephone guest from Israel, from the Holy Land on the line. Uh, Michael Freund is uh, joining us. He served as the deputy communications director in Israeli prime minister's office under Benjamin Netanyahu. Not this iteration of Benjamin Netanyahu, a previous uh, Netanyahu administration. He's also the founder and chairman of a fascinating organization called Shave Israel, which essentially rescues Jews lost Jews around the world who may have some tinge of Jewish heritage or some uh, who may have been remote parts of the world. He finds them and brings them to Israel and a absolutely fantastic organization. A, of course, a native New Yorker who grew up uh, very, very close to me. He's also graduated Princeton University and has an MBA from Columbia and made Aliyah quite a few years ago. I can't, uh, Michael, uh, how many years has it been? Oh, it's been a while. Um, I made Aliyah back in February of 1995. 1995. Fantastic. Wow. So that is yep. that is quite a few years. So you, you were definitely acquainted with the Israeli election experience at this point. Yes, um, <laughs> that indeed is the case. I've had the privilege to, uh, to cast my vote here, uh, something that... Uh, we should uh, we should not take for granted. For two thousand years, Jews did not have the ability to uh, to choose a uh, a Jewish leader in a Jewish state. So uh, we have to thank God for that. I'm not sure they voted the last time before they were exiled either. So this is actually the whole voting thing is probably a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, well, welcome to Spin Class. It's a real it's a real honor and privilege. To, and I forgot to mention your column in the Jerusalem Post of uh, fundamentally Freund which is uh, yeah, one of those uh, great alliterations. Yes, 
So tell uh, so tell us every Thursday. So tell us about the fundamentals here of this last election and give us give us a quick uh, 30 second take on uh, what happened and what didn't happen. What surprised you? Well, uh, one surprise for many was the fact that the turnout uh, was higher than uh, than expected. It actually rose uh, since the last election, and uh, more than two-thirds of uh, the Israeli electorate uh, came out and voted, which for a Western-style uh, uh, democracy is uh, a rather high percentage. Uh, but, of course, the biggest surprise was the success of... Um, Yair Lapid's uh, Yesh Atid party, which um, soared at the polls and uh, came home with uh, 19 seats, uh, which positions him as a kingmaker now uh, in uh, in the formation of the uh, the next Israeli government. So he just said the I think a couple days ago that he plans or he expects to be prime minister the next uh, time around. And we, we've, yes. we've seen these things in the past where it's even with his father, right? Tommy Lapid, he, he soared. He had uh, uh, we saw it with uh, Kadima. We saw all kinds of uh, flashes of the pan. And then these parties, they come and they go. That's exactly the, uh, the, the main challenge that he faces, uh, because, uh, as you said, most of these centrist parties or uh, left of center parties that have arisen uh, over the past few election cycles have proven to be uh, temporary at best. They uh, they make a big splash, they get a lot of attention, a lot of seats, but then uh, when they uh, come up against the realities of uh, the political world here, uh, they they come crashing down pretty quickly. Whether Lapid will be able to translate his success at the ballot box into uh, a longer-term uh, electoral success uh, remains to be seen. And a lot will have to do with what portfolios he demands and receives uh, in the next government. So you, you've been inside the BB world before. You're also, I guess, uh, outside the BB world right now. Uh, how is the BB world or the internal uh, Likud world reacting to uh, to the the election results are they chastened, or do they feel okay? Any result that keeps Bibi as prime minister is a is a positive result. I think it's a little of both. In other words, uh, there's there's clearly a sense of satisfaction that um, when the party leaders uh, go to President uh, Perez and uh, recommend a particular. Uh, person uh, to be the next prime minister, uh, something on the order of 80 out of the 120 members of Knesset will, in effect, be recommending uh, Mr. Netanyahu to lead the next government. On the other hand, uh, it's clear that uh, the Likud's performance at the polls was not what they were hoping for. Uh, the Likud, together with uh, Yisrael Beitenu, uh, of Victor Lieberman's party, who uh, they ran jointly, received uh, just 31 seats, which was a drop from the 42 that they had in the, uh, in the outgoing Knesset. Uh, and that, of course, weakens uh, the prime minister's position vis-a-vis -vis his other uh, potential coalition partners. So uh, this has certainly been a, uh, a teachable moment uh, for, uh, for the Likud, and presumably they will draw the necessary conclusions. So I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Uh, we also have on the line Binyamin Rose, also joining us from Israel. Binyamin is the news editor for Mishpacha English Language Mishpacha magazine. 
and he has been there since the inception nine years ago of the magazine. Uh, a highly regarded writer, and uh, I'm an avid reader. He covers U.S. and Israeli politics for a mostly Haredi audience, but not exclusively, I would say. And I, I think he get, gives a... I wanted to give us a perspective on the coalition building, which is going to have a significant religious dynamic to it as to whether the Haredi parties uh, come into the government and can coexist with uh, Yair Lapid and uh, whether the and what happens with uh, the national religious party, Yisrael Beiteno. So, Benjamin, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you, Michael. And uh, hello to uh, Michael Freund as well. So, Benjamin, uh, tell us about the, the tension right now within the Haredi camp as to how uh, as to what what they need to do or what they might do. They're probably buoyed a little bit by getting uh, by having a strong showing. On the other hand, uh, there might be a, a strong uh, there's a strong push in Israel as far as the draft is concerned. I think, uh, Michael, uh, you hit uh, both nails right on the head. There are two factors right now. Uh, for one, for the Haredi point of view, they were very happy with their turnout and their showing, obviously. Uh, United Torah Judaism increased uh, their vote total by 50,000 from the last election, and that earned them two more seats. They leaped from seven to, from five to seven, and Shas had 11. So, actually, when you total up the votes of both of the Haredi parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, together they only got 16,000 votes less than Yari Lapid's party. So, theoretically, that should make them uh, in a stronger position. On the other hand, it's much harder to coordinate the positions of two parties than it is for Yari Lapid to coordinate his own Havre uh, Knesset. So as a result, uh, I agree with Michael. I think that uh, Yesh Atid uh, and uh, Yari Lapid is definitely in the driver's seat in terms of coalition building. But uh, uh, I think that what Netanyahu wants and will need most of all, I think he wants large enough coalition so that no one party can knock him out. In other words, let's say that, uh, as you mentioned before, that Yair Lapid says, well, I want to be prime minister one day, and let's say he wants to hurry that day, and uh, maybe even topple any government that he's in so that you can have new elections. So that being the case, uh, I think Netanyahu will be wary of that, being the political animal that he is. And I think he wants to immunize himself so that he has a large enough coalition so that even if any one party, Lapid or anyone else, decides to leave, that'll still have a ruling majority. And that being the case, uh, the only configuration that he could do that with would be with uh, Likud Yisrael Beitena, which is one party, Yeshatid, and then to uh, sign up uh, by Yehudi Shas and United Torah Judaism. Uh, that would give him 80, 81 seats. And uh, even if uh, Yair Lapid were to leave, it would still leave him with 62. So, Michael Freud, uh, how, how, does, how does Lapid deal with the idea of having the Haredi parties in the government after him basically making a, a push towards that secular center and, uh, and the share the burden movement. Uh, does he go back on his principles, potentially? Well, uh, it was a central component uh, of his campaign, the Shivion uh, Banetel, the, uh, the fact that everyone uh, needs to serve the country uh, equally, so to speak. And it is hard to imagine that that is something that he will be willing to uh, to give in much much room uh, for compromise on. Uh, it would become a read my lips moment uh, if he did that. Um, 
so it's very possible that we might see a coalition that will be formed in stages, where, whereas, like Benjamin was saying, uh, initially uh, Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett may join with uh, Likud to form a government, whereas Shas uh, may come in at a later stage once some kind of law is passed uh that rega- regarding the draft of uh, of the Haredim we don't know yet obviously but that that is one scenario that is being discussed uh because um it's hard to see a situation where an agreement could be reached uh between uh, Lapid and um Yahadut Torah the uh the other Haredi party uh on this issue and uh, though Shas is believed to be more amenable to a compromise, just how far they'll be willing to go and whether that would be enough to satisfy uh, Lapid's uh, demands, um, it, it, it's hard to predict. So, of course, it's not just, and I'll throw this question out for both of you, we can, we can start with, uh, with Benjamin, it, it's not just the draft, of course, there's also the economic issues, which were highlighted, or at least brought to the fore by the announced retirement of uh, the governor of the Bank of Israel, Stanley Fisher, but uh, of course the idea that the country is facing deficits and there's going to need to be cuts, and a lot of those cuts uh, are going to be on the backs of the poor, and the poor, and a lot big makeup of the poor is the is the Haredi society. Benjamin, Michael, I think that uh, Michael Freund touched on the phrase that's been talked about a lot during the course of the campaign and even beforehand, the Shibion Benetel, uh, how they're going to share the burden, and uh, I think. The way uh, Yari Lapid expressed that leaves himself a little bit of wiggle room. In other words, yes, it's generally applied to the draft and that everyone should have to serve in the draft equally. However, on the other hand, and you mentioned Stanley Fisher, uh, Stanley Fisher uh, has been one of the big movers and pushers behind trying to increase male participation in the workforce in Israel. So therefore, uh, I think that uh, economic equality or netel b'shivion, however you want to say it, can also be used to describe the situation where they might come up with the plan and say, listen, you know, we're not going to force Haredim to go into the army, but what we'd like you to do is at least go out into the workforce. And something like that could be more palatable in certain uh, instances uh, to the Haredi parties, and that being the case, and I think that we would have, uh, we would see uh, a sharing of the burden done in ways other than just army service. And that could give uh, Lapid uh, the opportunity to say, hey, I won too. Michael Freund. I um I'd like to actually touch upon something else uh here which is the um which many observers uh, at least before the election were talking about but not so much since. Um the fact is that out of the 120 incoming Knesset members, uh close to 40 of them are uh, religious Jews. And this is a uh a record so to speak. It's the most uh, the largest representation for um, observant people in the Knesset since the establishment of the state. And they are spread out over a variety of parties. Uh, Mr. Lapid himself has uh, a rabbi in the second slot on his list, as well as um, on the 17th slot. An, Ameri- um, an American this- rabbi. Exactly, yes, Rabbi Dove Lippmann. Uh, so this is clearly uh, represents a, um, a growing trend and I think it's a welcome trend where uh, religious people are becoming more involved in the political life of the country, um, not, not leave sitting on the sidelines and fetching, uh, 
um, but actually getting into the arena, rolling up their sleeves, and trying to directly influence uh, the public life of the state of Israel. And uh, Binyamin mentioned before how Yahadud Torah, the, uh, the Haredi party, had grown from five to seven seats. Now that, too, is um, also worth uh, examining, because uh, for many years, Yahadud Torah had remained relatively static or stable, uh, hovering around five or six. And that was despite the uh, rapid population growth uh, of the Haredi uh, community. In other words, even as their numbers were uh, burgeoning, uh, their representation in the Knesset um, had failed to reach that, uh, that mark of seven seats. Um, many observers were wondering, uh, you know, perhaps many Haredim were, uh, were voting uh, for other parties, uh, going to Likud or, or other right-wing parties. But um, the fact that Yahadud Torah was able to, uh, to climb to seven may also uh, indicate that in the years to come, uh, the Haredi presence in the Knesset will, uh, will grow stronger. So picking up on that... that the, oh, go ahead, Benjamin. I was just going to add that I think that uh, in, in this particular case, you know, there's always been a certain small percentage of uh, Haredi voters who haven't voted for Haredi parties. Our Mishpacha Hebrew language newspaper was running some surveys to show exactly where that breakdown was. In some communities, uh, uh, there were as many as 8% of Haredi voting for non-Haredi parties, and in other communities, it was as low as uh, 0 or 1 or 2%. I think in this election, what happened, uh, besides obviously the fact that the Gedolim and the Rabbanim, who uh, basically are the leaders of the Haredi community, rallied the troops, but I think the troops themselves felt that uh, with everything that was going on in the campaign, that... Uh, the backs of the Haredi community were to the wall a bit. And I think when people feel that way, so they tend to uh, come out and uh, show their numbers. And I think that's what happened here. And I, I think that's good overall for uh, Israeli democracy. And I think it's good for uh, uh, the Haredi parties because uh, the people who serve uh, will have the support of the people this time. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll all see, uh, we'll all see uh, the benefits of it. So to the outsider, a lot of, uh, People feel that the Haredi world is so monolithic, as particularly to a lot of journalists and reporters out there. But I think we know when you started off this election, there was kind of an unprecedented disunity within the, particularly within the Degel camp, uh, with the, which is the non-Hasidic camp amongst the uh, amongst the uh, Yadur Torah party, and it, it looked like there was going to be just a total fragmentation of of the of the Haredi world they came back together and there was seemed to have been a a lot of unity towards the end towards pushing the vote out uh the question is you know how does that will that continue uh there's a lot of uh factions within the within the Haredi world and uh, you saw actually uh two smaller parties uh, that broke off from Shas uh which probably might have siphoned up some votes i'm not sure if it was enough for them to have cost Shas an extra seat uh, but, you know, how does that play out? So, Benjamin? Michael, I think it's hard to say at this point if it's going to uh, continue. I think that uh, the first thing we have to wait for is see exactly who ends up in the coalition. Uh, if Shas and Yadu Tatara, United Torah Judaism, end up in the coalition as they were last time, uh, then I think you'll see the unity and the gains that those two parties made during the last couple or three weeks of the election when everyone closed ranks and pulled together. I think you'll see that sustained. 
uh, if they're forced into the opposition, so then I think it would be uh, quite likely that you're going to see a lot of second-guessing and a lot of talk about, okay, what do we do next? So, Michael, uh, one, th- one interesting thing, you mentioned the fact that Yeshatid had uh, Orthodox uh, rabbis on its list. And actually, I'd be curious as your take on, on Rabbi Dov Lippmann, because I think it's an interesting, his, his story with regard to the whole Beit Shemesh thing is interesting. But also, uh, uh, Beitenu had a, in their number two slot, I think Ayala Shaked uh, identifies herself as secular. Uh, you mean Abayi Ud? Abayi I'm sorry. <laughs> My, right. Exactly. Well, too Abayi. Um, you know, there's a lot of you know, kind of connection there. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, that Naftali Bennett uh, did in the campaign, and I I think he did it very successfully, was to present the Bayit Hayyudi, the Jewish Home Party, as exactly that a uh, a party that would be uh, a, serve as a home for all types of Jews, and um, uh, putting uh, a secular woman such as Ayelet Shaked um, in the leadership in a leadership position in the party underlined uh, that commitment of his uh, to transform it from a uh, simply a, a newer version of the National Religious Party into something that's more broadly based. And um, uh, clearly, uh, some of the uh, the mandates that the uh, Bayit Yehudi picked up uh, came from uh, voters who, in the past, would never have thought to uh, cast their ballots for the National Religious Party. So it, he certainly succeeded um, in that respect, and uh, he came away with uh, with twelve seats uh, as a result. Um, and it's. Uh, though there has been uh, talk in the media about the uh, differences of opinion between him and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu um, and their clashes in the past, uh, it looks fairly certain that um, that uh, Bennett and his party will be brought into the coalition relatively soon because um, I, I think that uh, we, we need to appreciate that Netanyahu is in a very difficult political position right now. Um, so-called mainstream Israel uh, feels that uh, here is their opportunity to uh, push the Haredim out of government once and for all and make some changes to the way society functions. But uh, Netanyahu knows that the Haredi parties in the past uh, have proven to be fairly uh, stable and reliable coalition partners and uh, they are a more natural fit for him in a coalition. Uh, so he's got to walk a fine line here uh, and try not to uh, disenfranchise uh, one side or the other, because if he does, it, it may come with a very high political price for him. A very delicate balancing act for somebody who doesn't have a strong foothold even within his own party right now. I'd say that there are a lot of people in the Likud who are unhappy with him. Well, there are a lot of people who are, again, unhappy with the results of the election. But uh, but clearly, there, the belief was before the election and after that uh, uh, the, there is no one else of Netanyahu's uh, stature and experience who could possibly uh, have, uh, have run against him uh, and garnered uh, widespread public support. Uh, in that sense, he's in a, a category all his own. So, 
one thing uh, we mentioned a couple times, the, the Rabbi Dov Lippman, and uh, I think it's an interesting phenomenon, uh, Benjamin, that he kind of came out of Beit Shemesh, and we all know about those clashes within, actually, within the religious community that happened to Beit Shemesh. Uh, can you, Benjamin, can you give us a perspective on Dov Lippman, who he is, and, and why he joined a secular party? I think there are a couple of uh, viewpoints as to uh, let's look at it from a different direction. Let's look at it from uh, why Yair Lapid would uh, choose two rabbis to uh, be as part of his party when he, Fair enough. when his power base is mainly from uh, the secular uh, Tel Aviv area. So uh, there are people, and I wrote about this uh, this past week, that there are people who say that you know it's part of Yair Lapid wanting to be inclusionary. Uh, there are others who uh, might look at things uh, from a more cynical perspective and say that. Uh, you know, he wants uh, a couple of rabbis who are orthodox, but uh, who don't uh, hold to the Haredi viewpoint, and uh, that will serve his purpose in terms of you know, having uh, the type of balance uh, to uh, counteract uh, the Haredi influence. So I think that's uh, something we're going to have to watch out for and see how that plays out in the upcoming Knesset. I think, though, from the UTJ and from the Shas viewpoint, I think the two people to watch or maybe, let's say, three people to watch, two in Shas and one in UTJ. Let's start with Shas, Aryeh Derry, and Ariel Atias. So Derry was always known as a bridge between the Haredi and the secular. Uh, he always had uh, good friendships with uh, secular politicians such as Chaim Ramon, who always had a great respect for Derry. And uh, he was always able to uh, pull things together and to uh, basically achieve, I wouldn't want to call it Achdus, but uh, I would say... Uh, to achieve a dialogue between uh, the different uh, sectors of Israeli society. Uh, Ariel Atias is basically also uh, the, one of the top men in Shas, and uh, I think that his record of accomplishments in terms of uh, the communications ministry and uh, knocking down prices, you know, Moshe Kachlon gets all the credit, but it was really Atias who started the ball rolling in introducing competition and breaking the monopolies of the telephone companies here. And also, uh, he has provided over the housing, pre- presided over the housing ministry over the last few years, uh, where we've had a record number of housing starts. So, uh, you know, these are people who have accomplishments uh, that I think are also appealing to uh, the secular. And I think that uh, these are people who can uh, serve as a bridge and work with uh, whatever uh, politicians are members of the other parties, including Dov Lippmann, including Rabbi Shai Piron. But uh, let, let me ask a more uh, pointed question, though. I, I just with regard to that, because we're almost out of time. Is is did the does the Dov Lipman represent a trend within the Haredi community? Let's say the working uh, Haredi or the Anglo Haredi, you know, non-Israeli born uh, Haredi community that uh, Yadud Torah and Shas, or maybe just the uh, Gibble can't reach out to, or have been ineffective at reaching out to. Does he represent that type of voter, and they they can't they don't have a big enough tent for him? Michael, I'm not sure that one man in the 17th slot in the 19-man party uh, uh, should be accorded uh, uh, that sort of mandate at this point. Uh, maybe uh, just because he's American that that we accord him that kind of uh, uh, that kind of respect. Okay, fair enough, Michael. Michael okay. Freud, uh, care to disagree? No, uh, <laughs> because uh, the fact is that uh, Rav Chaim Amsalem, who broke away from Shas and ran his own party, Am Shalem, uh, in the election, which uh, basically uh, raised as its flag the, um, the new Haredi um, 
um, um, model of uh, of the working of working and contributing to society and not just studying Torah full time, etc. Uh, failed to pass the uh, electoral threshold. Uh, I think he garnered 60,000-odd votes, but it wasn't enough to get him into the Knesset. One could point to that and suggest that um, uh, we're not there yet, that we we haven't yet reached a point where where many Haredim are willing uh, to cast their ballots for uh, such a platform. However, it could prove to be, uh, in retrospect, uh, an opening, which maybe years from now we'll look back and, and view this as the bridgehead uh, which, which led to some change. Well, there are upcoming elections in Beit Shemesh, I think city elections coming up in the near future, so we'll have to see how that, uh, how that shakes out. So one final question I want to throw out to you guys because uh, we're, we're almost out of time, so I want to thank you already. Is the... Foreign affairs just seem to have kind of dropped off uh, the electoral map, at least as it's covered over here. Uh, but it's hard to ignore what's going on in Egypt and what's going on in Syria, and uh, and obviously the the continued threat from Iran. Uh, how soon is this government going to be tested on a? And of course, the Palest- you know, the internal uh, uh, Palestinian issue is how how soon is this government going to be tested from a national security perspective? This government is going to be tested from day one, both uh, on a national security uh, point of view and uh, and the economic point of view. Uh, domestically, we're facing uh, budget cuts uh, ranging between 20 and 30 billion shekels over the next uh, two years. Uh, that's going to require some pu- some tough political uh, decision making. And um, in terms of foreign affairs, uh, it's clear that uh, Mr. Obama and the Europeans are gearing up to pressure Israel to uh, to try and make some kind of deal with Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, just today, uh, it's been reported by foreign uh, media outlets that um, uh, the Israeli Air Force uh, bombed a Hezbollah convoy in Lebanon. Um, how that will play out in the coming days, we'll have to wait and see. But there's no doubt that these security challenges, uh, which Israel faces, are uh, are not going away very quickly. Well, just remember that Obama knows better what is what's in Israel's interest than Netanyahu does. So. And he does say that he has our back. From that point so. of view, I think, uh, in addition to uh, the coalition building, it'll be very interesting to see what happens at this year's APAC meeting in the first week in March. Uh, Hello? Yeah, obviously we're here. Okay, I was uh, saying that it'd be interesting to uh, see what happens at the APAC meeting in the first week in March. Uh, there's uh, no set meeting yet uh, for Netanyahu and uh, uh, the President Obama to meet, but uh, I'm sure they will. And I think that's where uh, we're going to see what sort of movement will be on the peace process front. But uh, as far as uh, Israel being tested internationally, as Michael pointed out, uh, uh, there's obviously some Israeli Air Force action going on right now, and uh, even as we speak, uh, tensions are high with Syria. So uh, the Netanyahu government might be tested even before it forms a new government. Uh, on the other hand, the reason why it wasn't a campaign issue is because, thank God, the streets are safe and quiet. And for the average Israeli, that's really how they look at security issues. As long as they can get on a bus and get to their next destination, and as long as there's no fear and uh, no terror warnings, or attacks, then uh, the people are usually very happy to uh, 
uh, basically concentrate on economic affairs and not worry about the the foreign policy, but one of the things we've learned in Israel over the years is that you never know when your next foreign policy or security test will come and where it'll come from. It's amazing considering the drive from uh, Tel Aviv to Damascus is probably shorter than many people's commute in uh, the New York area. So, uh, gentlemen, I really want to thank you for co- for being on the show. Uh, Benjamin Rose, news editor at Mishpacha Magazine, Michael Foreign columnist for the New York, uh, for, I'm sorry, for the Jerusalem Post. And uh, a chairman of Shavei Israel and former communications deputy communications director for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Thank you for joining us in Spin Class. We look forward to having you again soon. Thanks, Michael. This is Spin Class talking politics with Michael Frege on the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, as we do, uh, as is our custom, we're going to switch gears back to the U.S., bring it back home a little bit, and uh, cover a very fascinating and intriguing figure uh, just across the river. Uh, in the name of Cory Booker. And if you haven't heard of him, uh, I'm sure you have, actually. Uh, Cory Booker is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. And might might ask, why would anybody want to be mayor of New York, Newark, New Jersey? Uh, but uh, that is uh, something we're going to learn about because uh, Cory Booker uh, is a Yale Law School graduate, a Rhodes Scholar, and, uh, and somebody who... who uh, decided to then go ahead and take his talent and move into a housing project in Newark and then went, uh, decided to run for city council and then decided to run for mayor and dethroned a legend in New Jersey politics named Sharp James. And uh, covering uh, Cory Booker is uh, a, a, a wonderful and interesting reporter, uh, Ruby Kramer from BuzzFeed, who has written quite a few articles about uh, Cory Booker being in the news. Ruby, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So uh, let's just you know dive right into things. Uh, Cory Booker, a a national figure from a troubled city. Yeah, well, Cory. I mean, Cory's a really interesting uh, figure because he actually didn't grow up in New York. He grew up in Bergen County, which is uh, kind of more well-off county in New Jersey. He grew up with well-to-do parents, um, and you know, got a football scholarship to Stanford. Um, I forgot then, the Stanford part. You're right. You want to yeah, be. You so want to. You want to mention both coasts exactly. And uh, you know, finds his way over to Yale Law School, of course. Uh, Rhodes Scholar in Oxford comes back, um, and like you said, he moves into Newark um, and kind of takes the city on as his own. So politics in New Jersey is kind of known as a rough and tumble, and I think that's probably an understatement. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, Cory Booker couldn't have done that without a little help from uh, quite a few, quite a few people. Um, he- yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he has, you know, he has a lot of supporters outside of Newark, um, even from his first mayoral race in 2002, which he actually lost to Sharp James. Um, it was documented in the in the film Street Fight, which is great and was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, so you can watch it there. But but even in that race, he had support from kind of the wealthier suburbs of Manhattan that are in New Jersey, like Montclair, and he had support in New York City. He had support all across the country, really. Not so much support in New York, where he was less popular. Um, his opponent, Sharp James, who he would go on to beat, like you said, four years later in 2006, accused him of, of being a carpetbagger, accused him of being white, um, lodged. Uh, Wait, accused uh, him of being accused him of being gay. white, of being white. Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. White. Just, I so, just wanted to clarify uh, that. Yes, white. So, so derogatory so term. Sorry. A derogatory term, obviously. 
Well, in Newark, yeah. I mean, you know, and then also, I mean, Mayor Booker is black. So, I mean, it's not, you know, it's just not true. Um, Seems kind of obvious. Parents, he's black. Uh, but the argument that Sharp James was pushing, and this is someone who's been, um, you know, in the Newark kind of political establishment for 30 years, is that uh, someone like Cory Booker, who has, you know, this, this incredible pedigree, who's not from Newark, is, quote, not black enough, which is something he said often. So let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, he, he got the job, okay? This is probably the job that you he always wanted, but uh, may have found out that he probably didn't want it so much it he, he's had a he's had a successful uh, run as mayor yeah he actually has um and and he still has a lot of critics but but you know every major indice in in the city of newark has improved or increased uh since since he came into office in 2006 five-year crime trends are or better um the population is growing um, I mean, and, you know, Corey is the first mayor since the 1960s who hasn't been indicted. Um, That's setting the bar low. That is a, it's a little bar. Um, but, the, but the way that Corey, dis- that, that Mayor Booker described it to me was that, you know, he has, he's finishing his second term and he's finishing what he calls the, quote, story of Newark. He calls it a bridge chapter. And he's decided already he's not, run- he's not running again, correct? He's not running again. His term expires in 2014. Um, he he didn't intend to run for for a third term. He's been consistent about that, and he's been it, the last year has been a kind of period of consideration for him about whether he wants to run, whether he wanted to run for governor against Chris Christie this this year, or run uh, for 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 Senate potentially next year in 2014. And and I'm sure many people saw that decision played out in part on lots of cable news shows. You saw him on CNN saying, you know, I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do, and it was kind of this really long drawn out. Um, almost public decision-making process um, that that a lot of people criticize is not handled very well. So let's talk about that for a second, because in this show we like to talk about politics in, in <laughs> yeah. particular. Uh, let you, you said that the White House helped Booker with his decision-making in, yes. in in this. They said, "Don't run against Christie. Go ahead and run against Lautenberg." And, and yes. of course, let's let's just also keep in mind that. The whole Democratic establishment of New Jersey seemed to have been waiting for Booker to make up his mind. They were hoping that he would run against Christie because he was considered the big hope. And uh, obviously, Hurricane Sandy uh, played into that, but it was uh, it was deflating certainly for a lot of uh, for a lot of New Jersey Democrats. In fact, I think one state senator actually penned an open letter. Loretta Weinberg from uh, Teaneck uh, penned an open letter to Booker, uh, essentially cast, uh, uh, chastising him for not running. Exactly. Loretta Weinberg uh, told me that, you know, what this was, was was Booker kind of putting himself above the New Jersey State Party. Um, she well, no, no politician to run for no. governor because she thought he was the only chance that Democrats had of beating Christie. And in a way, he, he really was their best chance. No one has the name recognition that Christie has, uh, but Booker really comes close. Uh, I mean, maybe he has more name recognition. I'm not sure. Um, that's kind of a toss-up. They're both really celebrity candidates. But now we have State Senator Barbara Buono running against Christie, and you know, the the matchup in terms of name recognition is just nothing. But but back to what you were saying about the White House. Yes, um, while while Booker had had. New Jersey State Democrats courting him to run for governor. He also had the White House really whispering in his ears, saying, "You know, you might lose if you run against Christie. Run for, run for Senate. Um, it'll set you up for 
for a win, and it'll set you up for better things to come. So the one issue with that, of course, is that there's somebody there, and he's a Democrat. So talk, t- <laughs> yes, tell us about that. To be someone still in that seat, um, Senator Frank Lautenberg, who has served for two decades in the Senate. Um, he's on his he's on his second uh, iteration of of as senator. Exactly, he retired once already. He retired once briefly, uh, and he actually called that one of the worst decisions he ever made. He said he regretted it within minutes of making it. Um, I mean, he's a guy who just lives to be kind of in the game, doing this stuff. I mean, he is tireless. He also happens to be 89 years old, which is part of the problem. Um, he, he, if, he, if he had his way, I mean, if the guy could live forever, he would run again and again and again. That's just the kind of person he is. Um, he has not ruled out whether he will retire when his, his term expires in 2014, and he has not said whether he will run for re-election. But, but at this point, uh, Booker has not really waited on that decision from Lautenberg. He's just said, okay, I'm going to come out and, quote, consider a run for your Senate seat, uh, which we all know means he's running for the Senate seat. <laughs> of course. So, you know, it's a point of so conflict that, that in the state, and people really don't want a messy primary, which is which is something to avoid. I mean, it would just be a bad look for everyone involved. That that wasn't well-received by uh, Lautenberg. I think he mentioned something about uh, spanking? <laughs> yeah, so after, after it happened, of course, all of the reporters covering the story were like, wow, Frank Lautenberg must be pissed. And, and we all knew that he was, but he was staying silent on it, silent for about a month. Um, two weeks into that period, his aides started leaking out quotes to the press anonymously, of course, saying, you know, it's really a disrespectful thing, what Cory Booker did. Um, finally, like you said, about a week, a week, or, a week ago, uh, Frank Lautenberg himself speaks out on it, tells a reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer when asked about Cory Booker that sometimes when one of his four kids acts out, they just needed, quote, spanking and they'll be put back in their place. <laughs> so that's what Frank Lautenberg has to say about it all. And more recently, well, he's when, actually said when will that, that when will that occur? Is that going to be pu- is that, that is that going to be a public thing or it's going to be uh they're going to do that in private? <laughs> Let's hope it's in private, right? I, I absolutely well, look, I'm not a photographer, so <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I hope it's in private. I don't think I want to see that. But so so then more recently, Frank Lautenberg came out and uh, told the National Journal that uh, Mayor Booker hasn't been spending enough time in Newark, and that if he spent more time in Newark and not, you know, campaigning el- uh, at fundraisers elsewhere or on, you know, TV shows elsewhere, the city might be doing better. So he's really starting to come out and take some hits against. So him. there might be a battle after all. There might be a batter- battle after all. And so a couple- one uh, state Democrat told me, if anything. This challenge from Booker will only make Senator Lautenberg want to run even more. So the, well, there are a couple a couple things about that. I uh, mean, number one, I, th- I think that obviously his his age, but um, you had a he had a primary challenge last time around. I think people felt from uh, uh, Congressman Rob Andrews uh, from exactly. so, from South Jersey, which is of course uh, brings up a whole new dynamic of New Jersey Democratic uh, politics, the the North South divide. And uh, but that was beaten back pretty handily. So what yes, what's different this time? Well, someone told someone in the state told me that Senator Lautenberg would absolutely not enjoy the same support that he got from the very powerful 
county chairs that he received in 2008 when Andrews challenged him. I think that's mostly in part to his age. Um, I mean, at this point, there are some people who are ready to just get behind Booker as kind of the next generation. Um, Senator Lonberg has had a wonderful um, kind of legendary career, and I, I think that his supporters in the state have very mixed feelings about it. They want him to be able to finish that career out with dignity uh, and with the dignity that he deserves, but more and more people are coming to the coming to terms that, you know, it's time for him to go. Um, and, and, and then again, there are other people who will stand behind him. I think you're going to see a mix. I think, like you said, South Jersey is more likely to stand behind him. Um, but, 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 you know, the support he saw in 2008 was unilater- unilateral from kind of the state power brokers. It's not going to be that way in 2014 if Lautenberg does decide to challenge, to, to, to run for re-election. Now, did Booker also feel some uh, pressure not to run against Christie from I- inside the Democratic Party? I mean, there are some of his big supporters, uh, like uh, 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 Steve Adubato and uh, Joe DiVincenzo, uh, are, are known supporters of, of Chris Christie. Right. So, and perhaps he would also, from the South Jersey power brokers, uh, not, they they wouldn't, they have some kind of uh, alliance with Christie as well. I mean, how to talk about that for a couple seconds yeah, as we close. That's a possibility. I think the interesting thing about Booker and Christie is they really are um, kind of unlikely allies and friends. Um, although Booker told me uh, last week when I was interviewing him that he still could have beaten Christie, and you know he was saying uh, that while the governor was polling at his highest polling ever after Hurricane Sandy, which which has stayed above seventy percent, um, he could o- the governor could only pull fifty three percent in a head to head matchup with Booker. So Booker still maintains he could beat Christie, and that had nothing to do with the reason that he ran for Senate. He, he's going for Senate instead. Um, he just wants I to think, go to Washington. Yeah, I don't know though because Cory Booker. I mean, you know his spiel. Like it, it's not Washington D.C. at all. Right, he, chief executive he loves, like you know saying you know this is the new park that we're building. This is the new um, Whole Foods that we're bringing into Newark. He really likes concrete examples of change and improvement. He really likes touching base with constituents on Twitter on an individual level. He'll go out to people's houses, fix their heat, bring them space heaters. Um, I mean, you know, watching him, it's like he's this one-man machine um, who really wants to get down on the ground. As we know, that's not really something that senators do. Um, they make speeches on the Senate floor. They pa- they write and pass legislation. Um, right. They're, they're and, mired in bureaucracy. And the Senate's so, not necessarily held in such uh, high esteem right now. I think, you know, what, no. one thing I wanted to throw out there was all these retirements. Uh, Harkin, Chambliss, Jay Rockefeller, possibly Lautenberg. We'll see. And uh, we'll see. There, there, could, there could be others who don't want to run again. But, uh, Ruby, we are out of time, and I want to pick up this conversation in the future because I'm sure that this saga is not going to end anytime soon. So uh, right where, where, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, Ruby Kramer, R-U-B-Y-C-R-A-M-E-R. Fantastic. And you should check out BuzzFeed Politics. Absolutely. Every day. Every day. (laughs) Ruby Kramer from BuzzFeed. Thank you very much. Uh, This is Spin Class, Politics with Michael Fragan, and another show. We are done. We will see you next week. Stay tuned for the Book of Life with Charlie Harari on the Thursday Night Extravaganza on the Nachum Siegel Network.